Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning, an extraordinary moment in political history as the US Supreme Court overturns Roe v Wade. Now with Roe gone, let's be very clear. The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk. We sit down with new police minister Chris Hipkins and then exclusive figures released under the Official Information Act reveal new failings for KiwiBuild. I do think this policy could be deemed a failure if you're purely looking at uh, individual home ownership as the metric of success. But we begin this morning in the US where the Supreme Court has overturned Roe v Wade, reversing the decision which for decades guaranteed women's access to abortion in the United States. The decision sparked protests and criticism from world leaders. One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis is in New York's Union Square where another protest is due to begin shortly. Kia ora Anna, thanks for being with us. What are you expecting in terms of protest today? Kia ora, good morning Jack. Well actually while we've been here, um, one protest has just wrapped up and you know, look, this is Union Square, you'll know uh, that it is the scene of protests for years now in New York. So as long as there is something to talk about, people will be down here consistently. We heard that there's another protest scheduled for another couple of hours from now at 8pm uh, Eastern Time, which is in about three hours time from now. And then there's another protest scheduled for 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. Of course, this is just one park. There are rallies in Brooklyn this afternoon. Uh, there rallies still down in D.C. outside the Supreme Court. There's a protester sitting on top of a bridge in D.C. He's been there for nearly 24 hours now. We are being warned that there will be protest action for days to come right across the country. OK, let's talk about what this actually means because the draft ruling uh, was leaked a couple of months ago so this decision had been expected but there are 13 states in the US that have so-called trigger laws so as soon as the Supreme Court issued its decision those laws came into effect. What has that actually meant in those states? Well, it's meant an immediate ban on abortions. We've seen already abortion clinics having to call women up and say, I'm so sorry, the procedure that you are quite literally getting in the car and driving to right now cannot be carried out. Uh, effectively, abortion clinics yesterday shutting down. That is the end. They were going in anticipation, perhaps, of this uh, decision coming out. They had continued to offer appointments, but did see that this might be the last opportunity to offer services to women until they come come up with a plan B, uh, as it might be termed. Uh, in Missouri, for example, you know, this is the state that took the case in the first place, or Mississippi rather, that took the case uh, to the Supreme Court that carefully worded around specifically challenging Roe versus Wade. Well, there is no more abortion. That trigger law has come into place. It now rules out any kind of abortion, even in cases of rape or incest. Uh, that has come into effect immediately. There was only one clinic operating there anyway because of the severe restrictions that had already been put in place. And that is a scenario being repeated in states around the country now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Give us a bit more context around this decision because there are some indications from the justices on the Supreme Court that this may just be uh, the, the tip of the iceberg, that they're actually looking to curtail some other rights that many Americans currently enjoy. That's right. That specifically comes from the comments of Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, I'll preface this following comment uh, with the fact that a number of other justices did say from the Conservative majority that what they decide about Roe v Wade does not necessarily have a flow-on effect down the river to other rights. 
But Clarence Thomas pointing out yesterday in his opinion that he felt uh, that this now opened the way for other precedent cases, specifically around gay relationships, around gay marriage and around access to contraception, to all be looked at again, to be revisited. He called them erroneous decisions. Based on uh, the past precedent, of course, these cases had invoked Roe v Wade in some cases and relied on its precedent in order to become an applicable uh, piece of, well, not legislation, but a ruling that could be relied on for people to carry out their lives here in America. So certainly there is huge concern. I mean, it's pride weekend here in New York. This is supposed to be a time of celebration of America's rights and how far this country has come. And my God, it's an, it's an opportunity to actually reflect on what on earth has happened to this country uh, in the space of 50, dec 50 years for everything to turn on its head like this so quickly and what will be next. Anna, talk to us a little bit about the political fallout from this decision. So there is some concern, really, that the Democratic Party has not been prepared enough for what was clearly signalled a month ago with the leak of that draft report. Now, at the time, there were allegations that it uh, came from a Conservative member of the court because it essentially pushed them, concreted their positions. They couldn't be seen to be swayed by public opinion and therefore any leaked draft was a heads up as to exactly what was going to happen and that's basically what we saw. The wording hardly changed. Now though, what have the Democrats got planned? Unfortunately, it doesn't look like a whole lot. So far they've sent out uh, a fundraising email and said everybody needs to turn out and vote in November. Well look, if you're already in a Democratic state, that's unlikely to change. If if you're already in a Republican state, that's mm. unlikely to change. So really what it comes down to is some of these swing states. And, you know, we've seen fights in, in states like Georgia particularly come down to uh, huge swings in the past and, and most recently in the last election. And that will be a focus of attention where it's a, a fairly even split between Democrats and Republicans. Who can draw people uh, from the middle where they might be a Republican who support abortion mm. rights and what the Democrats can actually offer people in that state and say, hey, you don't have to like Joe Biden, uh, but this is not opportunity to at least maintain some you know, modicum of, of, of middle ground. Yeah, that's what I wonder. Is there opportunity there? Because of course the US midterms are in November of this year, I think November 8th from memory. Is there a scenario where despite Joe Biden's very poor approval ratings at the moment, this decision actually galvanises a bit more support behind the President and the Democrats? The problem I think you've got, Jack, is that this is an issue that feels very broad and it feels like it affects a lot of the population, but unfortunately it's not something that affects half the population, men basically, in an everyday manner. They hardly ever feel that really immediate effect of it impacting their personal rights and their healthcare rights, and they are voters like women are. And then the next issue is that this is not a decision women have to make every day. And unfortunately in America at the moment the decisions that are being made every day are around inflation, are around the price of gasoline. And so Republicans are really able to swing the argument and say these are the issues that are affecting your everyday life. And really it's a matter now for the Democrats to be able to grab onto a fundamental human right and be able to, to target that audience and say this is what really matters for the future and for the decades to come. Kia ora, Anna. Really appreciate your time. That is One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis. For the best part of two years, Chris Hipkins' life has been consumed by the pandemic. As the COVID-19 response minister, he's been central to the big decisions around lockdowns, borders, vaccine mandates and public health restrictions. But then, just like that, he was done. 
The Cabinet reshuffle saw him give up the portfolio at a time when emergency departments are under massive strain. And the Health Minister says officials have been surprised by the sheer number of COVID-19 cases. So, earlier this week, I sat down with Chris Hipkins and I asked him to reflect on his time managing COVID. Yeah, it's been an incredible two years. And actually, you know, as I step away from that job, looking back over that last two years of the highs and lows and the decisions and uh, and all of the things that went well and all of the things that, you know, you look back on and think we could have done that better. It was just a pretty remarkable time for the whole country, really. Uh, we're in a very different space when it comes to COVID-19 now. We've moved well past the, the elimination strategy that we had for the better part of two years. We're now in a, in a position where we just have to adjust and we have to accept the reality that COVID-19 is here, it's here to stay, um, and we have to just learn to do things differently, and we need to learn to, to live with COVID-19 being one of the many ailments that we uh, that we deal with on a year-to-year -year basis, and it's, it's a different situation now. We have a vaccination, we have treatments that are available now, none of those were available in the beginning. Uh, the virus itself is mutating, uh, and you know the, the more recent variants of the virus, less deadly than some of the earlier variants, but more dominant, uh, which is encouraging. Okay, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about where our COVID response is now in a moment, but perhaps uh, for the sake of reflection, I can trade you one gloat for one regret. So can you give me maybe your proudest part of the COVID-19 response and then the one thing you would do differently? I think if you, if you look at the overall results that, that New Zealand's achieved through COVID-19 compared to other countries, it's hard not to be proud of that. You know, we've had the, the lowest mortality rate in the OECD, I think, in Japan and New Zealand right at the bottom of the table there. Um, you know, depending on which, which day of the week, you know, there, there seems to be a little bit of movement between the two countries. But, but actually, we've, we've ended the, 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 the first part of the pandemic in far better shape than just about every other country in the OECD. And so, you know, on, on that metric alone, you know, I think we can be really proud of what we've achieved as a country. You know, the regrets, I think um, it was always going to be hard to get from a point where we had no COVID-19 in the community to one where the border was reopened, where COVID was, you know, part of our day-to-day -day lives. And it, that is exactly what happened. It proved to be a bit of a bumpy journey uh, to get from one point to the next. And so there will always be things that you can look back on. Is there something you would do differently there, then? I'm not sure that, you know, one of the challenges that looking back, and I've had a bit more chance to look back over the last few days, is you still have to make decisions based on the information that you had at the time. Yeah. So you can look back and say, well, if I knew now, you knew then what so, I know so, now. So, so, no, so with that in mind then, with the benefit of hindsight, what, yeah. what would be the thing you would change? Oh, I, I think there were probably some areas where we could have moved more quickly to step down some restrictions. Um, you know, But of course, at the time, like there, was, there was still a whole lot of... Well, I think that, that lockdown in Auckland at the end of 2021, um, I think nerves were pretty frayed by the end of that, and we should acknowledge that Auckland has paid a big, big price um, for our, our ongoing suppression of Delta while we got our vaccination rates up and so on. It's an interesting time for the Cabinet reshuffle because we have emergency departments that are overloaded at the moment. Uh, Wellington and Hutt Valley DHBs have deferred planned care for another month on top of the deferrals that already had in place. We're recording thousands of daily cases. We are recording COVID-19 deaths in double figures most days. 
Why is now the right time for you to be stepping away from this portfolio? It's now primarily a health system response. So a lot of what my job has been over the last two, you know, two years has been making sure that all the different parts of government that are involved in the COVID-19 response have been lining up and, and getting their, their actions coordinated. In reality, now it's primarily the health system that's that's dealing with COVID-19. You know, our border restrictions are, are largely been removed. Those, you know, alert level framework decisions that we were having to make, you know, those were a feature of an elimination strategy rather than the, the reality that we're living with now. And so it really is now down to the health system. And I acknowledge it's a system under a lot of pressure. Uh, and so hence it's, it's the health ministers really that are the best people to be leading them through that. Having spent so long going to pretty extreme measures by international standards to manage COVID-19, why is the government no longer prioritising a health response? Oh, I think we are still absolutely prioritising a health response and you see that in the fact that we still do have requirements in place so the masks requirements that we have in, in various settings are still in place and so on um, but we have to acknowledge that the overall health profile and the overall health considerations have changed. We've got vaccination, we've got treatments uh, there, are, there, are, there are things that we can do that, that make the response more of a personal thing rather than a government directed thing. But, but I mean, thing. we are no longer absolutely prioritising the, 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 the health or public health, are we? Because we've dropped the vaccination mandates, we've dropped mask mandates in schools, you've reopened the border, you've dropped pre-departure testing. If health was the absolute focus for our COVID-19 response, you wouldn't have made those changes. It's never been the only focus. It's been the primary focus for us, you know, but we've had to weigh up economic considerations and all of those other things. COVID-19 uh, is moving into a different space in terms of the level of health risk associated with it. It is becoming more like many of the other ailments that we deal Still with. Still killing a lot of people. Uh, absolutely, and look, we're not out of the woods yet, and we still are going to need to be responding to COVID-19 for some time. But as, I, as I've said, it's now primarily a health system response. For two years, you said our response would be guided by the science. And a group of 150 experts, including the big names, Dr Susie Wiles, Dr Michael Baker, Anna Brooks, Professor Rod Jackson, they've all been calling on you to do more. They want ventilation standards. They want regular measuring. They want those mask mandates in school to remain in place throughout the winter. They want a comprehensive mitigation program in addition to the vaccine program we have. Why is the science no longer guiding our response? Oh, the science absolutely is, um, but it's not just the science of COVID-19. Of course, we've got to look at all of the, uh, the other science that should be informing our, our approach here. So if we look at the mental health impact, for example, uh, we have to consider that as well. You know, we have to look at the other things that are associated with our COVID-19 response that also impact on people's overall sense of, of well-being. Um, and so, you know, the science will continue to inform those decisions. It's a balance, isn't it? It always has been. And the truth is that these are political decisions and they always have been. You know, look, there's always been an element of politics and there's always been a set of choices to make. Uh, you know, I was the minister responsible for our border restrictions for two years. That was really tough going. And by the end, there's no question that we had started to run out of public support for maintaining border restrictions. And so we do have to respond to that. At the end of the day, our COVID-19 response was only as successful as it was was because New Zealanders were on board with it uh, and you know you have to keep the public on board with what you're doing if you start to lose the public from that then the effectiveness of the response is going to diminish as well you know we didn't have a police officer on every street to make sure people stayed home when we asked them to they stayed home because they could see the reason and they were willing to do that they were willing to make that sacrifice and so you know a big part of the response you know from the government's perspective has been making sure that we've been keeping the public with us that's key right you, you have 
you have essentially done what's popular as opposed to necessarily what is in the absolute best interest of public health? Well, no, I don't think that's true. I think what we've done is make what's, sure that what's, we, a, what's an unpopular well, well, decision you've I think made? What we've, what we've done is when we've asked people to make sacrifices, we've been able to explain to them why that's been necessary from a public health viewpoint. Mm. And so we've been able to get their support for those because we have been informed by the science and because we've been able to explain the logic of what we've been doing. Okay, let's flip things around. If we are no longer bothering with border restrictions and pre-departure testing, mask mandates in schools. What is the rationale behind continuing to have vaccine mandates in place for healthcare workers? I mean, ultimately, those are now decisions for, for health ministers. Uh, of course, uh, I still have a view on that. Um, you know, What's I your do, view? I, well, I do, I do believe that uh, ongoing requirements around vaccination that help to keep people safe, particularly some of our most vulnerable people, uh, can be justified. And so, uh, but ultimately, you know, will they be justified forever? No, they won't be. And so that is something that we will, as a government, keep under regular review. But, but given the stress on our DHBs, given a, the stress on our healthcare system as a whole at the moment, how is it better for our collective health outcomes to have people who could be working on the front line not working and have that workforce as it is under the strain it's under right now? Well, without vaccination, we could have even, even more uh, people in our health workforce out of the workforce because they are unwell. So it is making a difference in terms of you know, keeping people uh, on the job when we really desperately need them to be there. I checked the numbers this morning. Just a quarter of New Zealanders aged between 5 and 11 years old have been fully vaccinated. Why are vaccination rates for New Zealand children so poor? I think if we look at that age bracket, we should acknowledge that there, there was actually a relatively high rate of infection of COVID-19 uh, amongst that age group between when they got their first shot uh, and when they were due to get their second shot. And of course that pushes out by three months when they, get, you know, when they can get their second dose of the vaccine. We've got our vaccination rates up around somewhere around half, around half of that age cohort had have had one dose of the vaccine we've got a way to go to chase up the you know the the or, or the, well, the health system's got a way to go to chase up people to make sure that they're getting their second dose when they're eligible for it but it has certainly been disrupted by the number of kids who have had it so when should we see those full vaccination numbers much higher I think there, there is a reluctance amongst the parent community it's a choice for parents uh, I think some parents have made the decision look we're, we're going to wait a bit longer uh, my message to them is it's a safe vaccine and actually your kids are going to be uh, you know, safer having been vaccinated than if they get COVID-19 without having been vaccinated. And the probability of them getting COVID-19, of course, is, is, is much, much higher. When it comes to exams in a few months' time, should NZQA make allowances for the disruption that COVID-19 has caused this year? Well, as Minister of Education, that's something that I'm keeping under constant review. As of today, we haven't made the decision to do that, but we'll have a look at it again at the end of this term, which is a couple of weeks away, and then we'll have another look at it again midway through the third term. And you know, if at, at that point we see that the level of disruption warrants it, if we see that you know it is going to start having a disproportionate effect on the outcomes that we might see, then of course we know we've got some things that we can do because we've done them over the last two years. I know that you have made dispensations over the last couple of years. Are you concerned about the integrity of that qualification? No, and, and I worked through that very closely with the universities, with NZQA, to make sure that we were still delivering a really robust and credible qualification. Are you going to miss the COVID-19 portfolio? Uh, 
I, I won't miss waking up every morning thinking about it. Um, to be fair, in the last couple of months, it's been a different portfolio to the one that I had for for most of the last two years. You know, every time I got a phone call from Ashley Bloomfield, you know, I, I would sort of think, is this going to be the moment where we have to make another snap decision on something? And for the last few months, it hasn't been. We haven't been in that territory. But um, I certainly won't be missing the the anxiety that goes with the portfolio. That is Chris Hipkins. Next, the Prime Minister says her former police minister had a problem with narrative. So what will Chris Hipkins actually change? Kia ora, welcome back. In her cabinet reshuffle, the Prime Minister announced Chris Hipkins would become the new police minister. And I asked him what his predecessor, Portal Williams, did wrong. Uh, look, I, I don't want to get into you know, rehearsing the, the past. I think Poto Williams was an incredibly dedicated Minister of Police. Um, I think that uh, she was really focused on working with the police around the culture change that they've been trying to effect, uh, and I really commend her for that. Uh, there are a whole lot of reasons you know, for, for the change in portfolio. The Prime Minister has canvassed those, Poto Williams herself has canvassed those. Uh, I don't really feel that it's, it's appropriate for me to go back over that ground. I'll use the term that the Prime Minister said. She used the words... Uh, current narrative. She said the current narrative around Portal Williams has been distracting. So if narrative is what is important to the government, what will you do differently? I think one of the things we have to acknowledge is that uh, the overall level of public anxiety around policing and around crime is different to what it was two years ago. And so we're now in a situation where we've seen you know, an escalation in, in gang-related tension, and that's got people on edge. And we have seen some higher-profile youth offending, which well, quite rightly, I think, has got people look, you know, shaking their heads and thinking, this, is, this isn't OK. And so you know, the, the made-for-TikTok videos that we're seeing some youth offenders um, engaging in that kind of activity in order to gain notoriety on social media. I think people are concerned about that and they do want to see us making sure we're taking the, the right action to deal with those things. Now, as the Minister, I'm not going to get involved in the police's operational decisions around that, but I do have a role in making sure that they've got the tools they need to be able to combat those issues. I'm really interested in that term, though, that, that current narrative term, because clearly that is the concern here. Has the narrative been that this government and the police over the last couple of years have been too soft on crime? Well, no, I don't agree with that. I mean, we've got more police on the beat than we've ever had before. But the narrative, do you agree with the narrative? Well, I think there are some people certainly trying to claim that. Um, I don't agree with them, but there have been p people claiming that. So what will substantially change with you as Minister? Uh, look, I, I'm going to be out and about meeting with the police. I'm, I'm, my job is to make sure that the police have got the tools that they need to be able to do their job. It's not to tell them what to do. I don't intend to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as, as the Minister, I'm ultimately accountable for the performance of the police. I'll be working closely with them to make sure that they're achieving the outcomes that New Zealanders should expect of them. So was Potter Williams not doing that? No, I think she was. But, so so you know, what, what will change with you as Minister? What will substantively change with you as Minister? Oh, look, I, I'm not going to compare and contrast uh, my, my style with her style. Um, I can really talk about what I will be doing, um, and that is that I tend to be active, out and about. Um, I want to meet with the police regularly. I do think um, with my role both as Minister of Education and Minister for the Public Service, I can help to connect the police up with other government agencies because many of the challenges they're dealing with, and every police officer will tell you this, many of the challenges that they're dealing with are going to require a whole-of-government response because they're dealing with the effect 
effects of, of a whole lot of other pressure that exists within the community. I'm going to start with some big philosophical questions then, and we can focus on some of those specific issues you mentioned. What is the primary role of police? I think the primary role of police is twofold. It's to uh, make sure that we're dealing with the consequence of crime, but it's also to continue to work to prevent crime from happening in the first place, and I think that they need to focus on both of those things uh, in order to make sure we've got safe communities and in order to make sure that the public have trust and confidence in the work that they're doing. Has the New Zealand Police been a racist institution? I think if, if you look at the New Zealand Police, they are a cross-section of New Zealand. Have there been aspects of New Zealand in the past that have not lived up to the tolerant, multicultural society that we aspire to? Yes, of course there have been, and there are some high-profile examples of that uh, that have been well canvassed. But I think the police, if, when I go out and I speak to police officers, and I've, I've done a bit of that in the last few weeks, but I've done a lot of it in my time as a Member of Parliament, I've yet to find a police officer anywhere in the country that doesn't think that they should be striving for continual improvement. Of course, they go to work wanting to do a good job for New Zealand. And so, again, one of my jobs is to back the police's leadership in making sure that the police are committed to a cycle of continual improvement. And that does involve looking at all of those things around, you know, whether there are any biases in, in, in police practice, whether they be conscious or unconscious. Mm. Um, I have the same approach in education. You know, I don't think that our education system is racist, but it has underserved some of our communities in the past and we do need to get serious about tackling that. Under what circumstances would you as Minister support the general arming of our police? I, I want to make sure that police have got access to firearms when they need them, and they have got access to them when they need them. But general but, arming? Well, the issue around general arming, really, it is a, a question for the police. They can arm when, they, when there is a risk profile to warrant that. If you look, again, if you look overseas where police are generally armed, there's some, a whole lot of risks that come with mm. that. So if, if a police officer is carrying a gun around as of default, then we will would see is an increased number of police officers harmed by their own gun. Because, because when they're in an altercation with an offender, the offender can get their gun and use it against so them. So is there any circumstance where you, where you as Minister would support the general arming of police? Uh, look, I don't see a need for that at the moment. What I do see is a need to make sure that the police have access to firearms when there's, there's a risk that requires them to have it, and that that, that should not be too far away, and it, is, and it isn't. So police cars have firearms in their lock, lock box. They can access them when they need them. According to the Salvation Army State of the Nation report this year, measuring the differences between June 2017 and June 2021. Homicides have increased 11% in New Zealand. Acts intended to cause injury have increased 31%. Sexual assaults have increased 33%. Thefts have, incre have increased 10%. That's all on your government's watch. Why? <laughs> There is a lot that sits underneath that, but there's no question that those crime statistics are ones that we should take seriously and we should be um, doing everything that we can to support really the police. Bad. We yeah. should be doing everything we can to support the police to tackle that. Uh, you know, some of this has been decades in the making. I acknowledge that those numbers have all gone up in recent years, but if you look at the underlying causes of some of, of those uh, patterns of criminal behaviour, it's years in the making. So uh, if we think about, you know, I've got, I've got one of the country's biggest prisons in my electorate. And if you go and talk to the prisoners, which I have done over the time, my time as a Member of Parliament, you'll often find people who were victims before they were offenders. So, you know, the, the cycle of offending can be a long time in the making. Will those numbers drop on your watch? Uh, I can't guarantee that, but it's certainly something that we've, we've got to be aiming towards. Since you took over, the gang shootings in Auckland have stopped. Why? 
look, I, <laughs> the police have been working. Coincidence? No, well, I, th I think, you know, frankly, as much as I'd love to claim credit, um, I can't claim any credit for any change that's that's resulted in that. But what, what I can say is, you know, I've spoken to the, the dedicated police teams that have been working on gang-related crime, particularly in that Auckland area, and, and they have been working really hard for some time now to, to again, really understand what's going on there and to do everything they can to try and, you know, tone that down. Uh I know that you're concerned about interfering with operational matters, but you're not directing the police in any way when it comes to their response to the gang crime. That's been a massive concern this year in Auckland. Is it your understanding that the killer bees and the tribesmen have reached a truce for the time being? Look, I've read those reports in the media, and I've, you know, I've, I've heard other reports from the, the police as well about what, what may or may not be happening. Um, ultimately, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be relying on there being a truce there. Um, we, we still need active policing, and we will still have active policing. But have you, have you sought clarification from the police on that matter? Uh, when I last spoke to them about that, there was some uncertainty around whether that was going to hold, and you know, there were certainly conversations going. But there on is a truce, that, between according the uh, by your understanding. There's some uncertainty around whether or not that's actually been achieved, but uh, there are certainly reports of that. Yeah, but what have police told you? Uh, I haven't had a conversation with them in the last sort of 24 hours about that, but I think there's, you know, like I said, I don't think we should be relying on there being a ceasefire there. Um, the police need to continue the active work that they've been doing. Mm. You, you just said, though, that, that there was concern about whether it's going to hold. Those were the words you just used. That indicates that police have told you their understanding is that a truce has been brokered. It might be a tenuous truce, but it's a truce. Uh, again, you Clarity know, on that point, uh, well, and I'll move well, on. Well, no, but the issue, I mean, those really are questions for the police because th this is a situation. But you, as that, minister, surely have been briefed well, on this. This is a situation that can shift from from day to day, and I, and I don't get a daily update on it because those operational matters. I ultimately want them out there yeah. chasing the bad guys and not telling me about it. Um, and so, uh, but, but surely, given the concern, there have been two dozen shootings in Auckland. You must be briefed on this. Oh, absolutely. Look, and I, I'm keeping in regular contact with the police. But in terms of the, you know, the, the public briefings on that, they they really should come from the police and not from me. You've said that social media is one of the driving factors behind RAM raids. What percentage of RAM raids are actually published on social media, or is that more of an anecdotal take? I haven't got that. That's certainly what the, that's the feedback that I've been getting from the police. I don't have a number on it, but I do know that the police have been working with the social media outlets um, to try and make sure that, you know, that, that kind of criminal offending uh, isn't being glorified on social media. And I think the feedback, again, I've had from police is that those social media outlets are very receptive to those conversations. Have you had feedback from police when it comes to police pursuits? Because according to the latest numbers, last year just 17% of fleeing drivers were later arrested by police compared to 41% in 2017. Will those numbers change on your watch? I've had a conversation with the police around you know, the, the pursuits policy. It's something that they have got under review at the moment. I think they would acknowledge that those numbers, you know, particularly around the, you know, the, the overall successful resolution uh, of those issues, uh, that they'd like to see improvement on those. That doesn't necessarily mean, you know, chasing every car, but it, it can mean monitoring that car until it stops and then catching up with the people who are in it. So there, there's, you know, there's all sorts of uh, options that are available to the police. I know they've got that under review. Ultimately, those are operational decisions for them, um, but I'll, I'm sure I'll keep talking with them about it. But, I mean, you, you're concerned about the youth offending, and I think it's safe to say that a lot of youth offenders are those who are involved with fleeing, uh, in fleeing from police. So less than one in five are being arrested at the moment. It's pretty poor. Yeah, and look, I know the police are looking closely at that. Mm. Do, you, do you expect that that number will improve? Under your watch? I know the police are aiming to improve that number, and so you know, they'll have my full support in doing that. I know that they uh, think that that number needs some, some work.
when will the firearms registry be up and running? Uh, work is underway on that at the moment. Um, it's a five-year project to get everybody's firearms, you know, registered into it. There's still some work to be done there. I'm, I haven't had a chance to sit down and get into that in detail with the police yet, but I certainly will be doing so. From the information you have available, when is your best guess as to a time frame for that? My, my understanding, and again, it's early days, is that they're still aiming to have that up and running by the end of the year. Um, but you know, there's still by the end of this year, still work to be done. Right. Um, and it is a five-year. It is going to be a five-year project. We're not going to have every firearm in the firearms register on day one. It's going, to take, it's going to take some time. I know there has been debate over the last couple of years around police numbers. So at the moment, attrition rates are between 55 and 6%. Compared to when Labor came to power in 2017, when will police achieve a net increase of 1,800 officers on the beat? Um, that, that, of course, depends on a, on a number of things. We're doing everything we can to pump as many through the, the police training as possible. Um, it really depends on the level of attrition that we get. It could happen by the end of this year or early next year, uh, but again, that'll just depend on how many people leave the police force in the, in the meantime. From the numbers as they stand at the moment, when is the likeliest completion date? It's likely that it's possible <laughs> by the end of the year, but again, that depends on... Uh, on the rate of attrition that we see in the second half of the year. That is the new police minister, Chris Hipkins. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can hit us up on email, or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, KiwiBuild's top-line failure has been well-documented, but we've got new numbers for you that show yet another failed KiwiBuild goal. Hōki mai we welcome back to Q&A. When Labour was first elected to power in 2017, Jacinda Ardern and her government promised to tackle the housing crisis and they had a flagship policy they pledged would help young New Zealanders realise the Kiwi home ownership dream. You might remember it. Kiwi build. Kiwi build. Kiwi build. Kiwi builds. Kiwi build. Kiwi build. Kiwi build. Just in case you had forgotten the policy, here's the Governor-General's speech from the throne in November 2017. Through its Kiwi Build programme, this government pledges to build 100,000 high-quality, affordable homes over the next 10 years, half of them in Auckland. As we all know, the pledge was broken. The programme did build some homes and continues to do so, but when compared to its initial targets, Kiwi Build flopped and the government hit reset. We will be dropping the target of 100,000 houses over 10 years. Instead, we will focus on building as many homes as we can, as fast as we can. The targets we've had were overambitious and more seriously have actually driven perverse outcomes. Now look, we get it. The failure of Kiwi Build to hit its targets has been well documented. But given it was a flagship campaign policy for Labour, on Q&A we wanted to take a closer look at some of the other promises that were made around KiwiBuild outside of the baseline numbers. And one thing stood out. We're determined to make sure that Māori whānau get uh, the benefits of the KiwiBuild Home Ownership Programme. Um, like uh, Pacifica communities, Māori have been hammered by the housing crisis and we've seen Māori home ownership drop to less than half uh, of the rate of the general population. You see, one of the early criticisms of Kiwi Build was that it might act as a form of middle class welfare and that unlike some other population groups, Māori and Pacifica whānau wouldn't be as well positioned to access Kiwi Build homes. 
But Phil Twyford reckoned that wasn't the case. And he compared KiwiBuild to the Māori affairs housing policies in the second half of last century, which helped Māori families into home ownership. People will know that Māori Affairs Housing was extraordinarily successful for decades and um, gave so many whānau uh, a chance at home ownership by working directly with those families to get them into a position where they could take on a mortgage. And that's what I want to do with KiwiBuild. So then, that was the pledge. Now, as it happens, Kainga Order records ethnicity statistics for KiwiBuild buyers. Through the Official Information Act this morning, we can share, with them, uh, share those numbers with you for the first time. Now remember, to qualify for a KiwiBuild home, you have to have New Zealand citizenship, permanent residency or a resident visa. Almost 3,000 people have bought KiwiBuild houses, either as individuals or as part of a, of a couple. And here's what the numbers show. 11% of KiwiBuild buyers didn't give their ethnicity, but of those who did, there are big discrepancies relative to the overall population. Of the major ethnic groups as defined by Statistics New Zealand, New Zealand Europeans are the biggest KiwiBuild buyers. They make up almost 50% of KiwiBuild purchases, although it should be noted that's lower than the overall population figure. The next biggest group by ethnicity is Asian New Zealanders. They make up 15% of the population, but almost 40% of KiwiBuild buyers. And despite those early promises about Māori accessing KiwiBuild, more than four years into the scheme, just 4.8% of KiwiBuild buyers are Māori, even though Māori make up 16% of the population. For Pacifica whānau, it's similarly low they make up less than 4.5% of KiwiBuild buyers. So then, the vast majority of buyers benefiting from KiwiBuild are Pākehā and Asian New Zealanders. According to the 2018 census, Māori and Pacifica whānau make up 25% of our population, but they're just 9% of KiwiBuild buyers. Why? Well, one reason is that relative to incomes, KiwiBuild costs are still pretty high. And on average, Māori and Pacifica whānau have lower incomes than the general population. Wainui Rise in Silverdale, north of Auckland, is the latest KiwiBuild development and will be sold by ballot this week. The area is popular with those living and working around Auckland's hibiscus coast. But a rush hour commute to Auckland's CBD could take as long as an hour and 20 minutes. The cheapest two-bedroom home here costs $600,000. So a 20% deposit would require a couple to save $120,000. Before insurance, rates and outgoings with current interest rates, home loan repayments would total about $650 a week. But cost isn't the only issue at play. We spoke to Jade Kaki, a kaupapa Māori architectural designer, and gave her the numbers. Clearly a Māori and not achieving individual home ownership on parity with New Zealand, European or other ethnicities, both through the Kiwi Build programme and across the board. Uh, so it's clearly a systemic issue and a failure under Article 3 of Te Atiriti or Waitangi. Māori are on lower incomes overall and therefore these, um, these policies or these properties are less accessible to Māori overall. Some of our uh, whānau Māori might want to be living somewhere close to where the rest of the whānau is so that you have got those supports. And so you might not just want to live anywhere that you can afford, you actually want to stay close to your whānau. It's repeatedly been demonstrated that ma mainstreaming doesn't work for Māori. And so if it's, if it's mainstream for everyone, but under Pākehā cultural norms and taking into account um, things like Pākehā uh, incomes and ability to purchase homes, then of course you're going to set yourself up for failure. 
Now, it's important to note, KiwiBuild isn't the only way the government is seeking to address the housing crisis and its impact on Māori and Pacifica. The government has a significant public housing programme and last year it launched a national Māori housing strategy which aims to build 1,000 homes for Māori. But KiwiBuild promised many, many more and they weren't state houses, they were houses for whānau in urban communities to own. Megan Woods wouldn't be interviewed, but she told us this. Everyone has their own aspirations for housing. And while KiwiBuild is successfully helping thousands of New Zealanders get on the housing ladder, it isn't shifting the dial enough when it comes to Māori and Pacifica families. We have dedicated policies in place targeting specific needs, including for Māori and Pacifica. For example, we're helping whānau and hapu to create communities and build on whenua Māori, while Pacifica and Māori are two of the three priority groups of our $400 million Progressive Home Ownership Fund. One final note, just because we know you will be keen for an update. We crunched the numbers from the government's housing dashboard to work out when it will hit the initial 100,000 Kiwi Build target. On the current rate of progress, the final home will be completed just in time for New Year's Eve in the year 2300. <laughs> Stay with us. We're back after the break. As a director of the Design Tribe Architectural Practice, specialising in kaupapa Māori design, Ro Hoskins has been on the front lines of Māori architecture for decades. And with those Kiwi Build numbers in mind, I wanted to talk to him about what makes for good Māori design. And I began by asking how he got into architecture. Well, I think my parents probably identified that uh, maybe I was using my younger brother's wooden blocks a lot more than he was and was doing various things with them and making, making constructions and stuff. So they thought of, they kind of knew what architecture was and my mother had a brother who was an architect. So um, I was lucky that they, they kind of had a bit of an idea of what architecture was. So it was kind of, it was something that I didn't think about too much. Um, but when it was suggested to me, I thought, well, that sounds fine. So, and I was lucky that when I got to architecture school that, yep, it was something that was a real, there was a real resonance there and I knew that somewhere within that broader profession there was, there was a place for me. As you know, I'd grown up uh, and I was involved with the land march with my parents and involved with um, seeing how uh, in wider Aotearoa society we'd been able to, to move the dial a bit and in the world of education, to a degree in health at that time. Um, but it was a bit frustrating, I have to say, when I got to the architecture school, that the dial hadn't really moved, or hadn't moved very much. So um, there was a, um, for me, going to architecture school was about putting my, my Māori identity and my chosen profession, joining them together, and then hoping that there was a uh, an institution that could support the, the joining of those two aspects. And I, I think what I progressively found that I actually had to do it myself, that the institution actually wasn't capable of doing it, and that I should stop being angry with the institution and expecting them something that they, they weren't ready to do. You launched Design Tribe to give Māori access to high quality architectural services. 
what sort of projects are you personally drawn to? I think the most humble projects, uh, the most humble papakainga, Māori housing projects, are as rewarding as the largest projects where you've got theoretically a, the ability to have much greater impact on a wider community and, and at a national level. I mean, the range of projects that you are involved with, I can only imagine, um, exceeds almost every other architect on the planet. I mean, you, you are consulting on something as big as the CRL, the Central Rail Loop, but also helping to design a humble papakainga of maybe 10 whare for, for 10 different whānau. That's, that's pretty extraordinary. It is, it is. It's, uh, it is a privilege, uh, and it's all very rewarding. And I think over time, um, you know, I think looking at, looking at the common threads within, within those projects is really what, um, what keeps me interested in the breadth. Uh, and, I th and I also think about our tūpuna, who as architects of their time, as tohunga whakairo, tohunga hangafare, think about their roles. They were agents in the physical environment. They weren't limited to one particular aspect. They were planners, they were engineers, they were architects, they were master builders. Uh, they conceptualised projects uh, and they... Um, harnessed the, the resources of the community and the, the resources of the environment to, to make those projects a reality. Why is housing such an issue in this country? Yeah, well, I've been reflecting on that for a long time, and I think that uh, we as Māori have come from a, the luxury of being able to build directly from the resources at hand, resources from swamps, from repo, uh, raupo, whare, um, warm houses uh, in the north, um, a lot of whare niko, so we could build very quickly and um, we could build zero mortgage. And we could be part of a communion with our environment, which didn't involve a bank or a, or a mortgage broker or 30 years of indebtedness. So um, I'm, I'm constantly reminded of how um, our power over that design and con construction process has been diminished, yet the, the dwellings that we live in are, um, are so important to our well-being. Our ability to then, um, from a position of strength, look at our educational, our employment, our health um, aspirations. Um, so yeah, housing is, is basically the foundation of we've got warm, safe, dry, culturally appropriate housing. We've got the basis for good lives. What do you mean culturally appropriate housing? Well, we've, we've had not only the style of house um, dictated to us, but we've had the, the planning dictated to us from standard plan books, and that was from the very early Māori Affairs houses right through to, to our um, medium density uh, terrace housing that's proliferating in Māngere and Mount Roskill and other parts of the country today. So um, we've um, struggled, I think, and still do struggle to actually have power over the actual planning of those environments 
at the macro level as well as the micro level to make sure that our own family dynamics are, can be accommodated within those within those more dense environments. So, um, so yeah, that's that's a challenge um, that that's very front of mind at the moment. Can you speak to me just a little bit more about that with maybe an emphasis on that medium density housing? I don't think medium density has been truly uh, dissected or um, at any point agreed to by Māori or Pacific people as necessarily appropriate to meet Māori and Pacific needs. I think there's been a, a ministerial and a treasurer, treasury edict, thou shalt um, develop these areas and this is the yield you will get. And Māori and Pacific um, have been caught up in that process as have the rest of the you know, state housing um, cohort and to varying degrees of success. Um, yes, warm, yes, safe, dry, secure. And that's, I mean, that's really, uh, I think it's to be applauded that the government is finally putting major resources, resourcing into, into getting the volume of our um, state housing up. Um, the next challenge is looking at the um, the quality of those environments for Māori, Pacific and intergenerational whānau. And so that's that's what I think hasn't really been want to be discussed. I think there's been a, a sort of a there's been a um, a blinkered view of no no don't don't complicate this. We've we've got a housing crisis. Uh, we need to just build 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 build. And I'm saying, and other people are saying, uh, volume is great. We now need to look at the very real issues of quality and uh, cultural appropriateness, and particularly around the size uh, and the groundedness or ungroundedness of some of those environments. Because, for example, a two-bedroom, warm, dry townhouse that might have been built you know, for a relatively low price doesn't necessarily serve Māori or Pacifica or many other families when it comes to intergenerational living. You can't have Nan upstairs and the grandchildren downstairs, for example. Absolutely. I think having uh, in, in the terrace housing mode, normally the bedrooms are on the second and sometimes the second and third floor, and they're not always um, allowed for on the ground floor, and that's a critical issue. Uh, for disabled whānau members, uh, people who may not be disabled but, but break a leg or um, have um, movement issues, mobility issues, uh, nor can they invite um, uh, kōro and, and kui to stay uh, because the stairs are a, a health issue or a, or a safety issue for them. So yeah, I think, I think there's a whole lot of things that, that can be looked at to normalise um, the design of um, state housing so that uh, they are at least neutral and ideally positive for Māori and Pacific whānau. And um, the size of the rooms, um, having at least one ground floor bedroom, uh, the location of toilets in relation to kitchens, uh, I think there's, there's a, a whole bunch of things that, that um, could be done um, and aren't always being done right now. What role should Papakainga housing 
play? And why doesn't it play a larger role already? Well, you know the, the term follow the, follow the money. Uh, in, in this world, we say follow the whenua. And if you've got whenua, you've got access to a project. So because Māori uh, don't generally have control over or access to urban land, then the, the, um, the whenua sits with the Crown or the developer. So they uh, run the show in terms of design outcomes. And other groups try and throw stones at the process to try and uh, influence how those design processes go. So papakainga uh, necessarily means you've got some land with um, agreement over how Māori outcomes will be, will be achieved. Um, what we're hoping for more and more of, and there's a little bit happening right now with Kainga Order, is that iwi and Kainga Order sit together and partner on either iwi land or Kainga Order land, and, and then because they're both in the room, both around the table from the, from the first design sketch, then those outcomes are, are achievable. Um, unfortunately, the, the way the juggernaut that's running through these suburbs right now, that, that's not the way things are working. We, there, are some, there are some projects that are simmering along. Um, there are some, certainly some EV partnerships um, that are be beginning to be progressed. Um, but there's, um, there's a lot more to be done in this space. And I think the, the answer that you're alluding to is that um, if we've got a papakainga approach, then we've got an intentional community. We've got some knowledge of who's going to be living in that environment, what their dynamics are, what their needs are, how they're going to interrelate with the rest of the people in that in that um, in that papakainga, and thereby have the best chance of a, a really great outcome uh, from from a lived environment. Where might we be in in twenty or thirty years? Yeah, well, I think about 2035 being 200 years since the Declaration of Independence and then 2040, 200 years since the, the treaty, I think there's a, quite a few of us um, are thinking about, OK, you know, these, these are milestones which are sort of, you know, 13 and sort of 18 years uh, away, respectively. Um, and I think about what our tūpuna who signed the treaty, what their what their their aspirations may have been, what they would have, what measures they would have put on us as to show that their their descendants had had lived good lives and were living good lives. I think from a design perspective, I'd I really like to think that by 2040, that we really have um, we are designing state housing as assuming that at some point in the life of those environments that Māori and or Pacifica whānau will be living there and that those environments really do support their specific and wider cultural aspirations. I'd like to think that um, uh, the work that's happening in, in our urban design space, the way that we see um, Māori and iwi cultural representation appearing more and more in the, in the urban design of our cities and motorways and, and even smaller towns, I think the, the the work that the good work that's going on now, I'd, I'd really love to see that proliferating, so that when visitors come to Aotearoa, they are under no illusions that they are in a a South Pacific country and b that there's real cultural depth in those those built environments, which enable them to deepen their appreciation appreciation of 
of that place and the people of that place. So I think we're on we're on uh, we're on a, a pretty good trajectory, um, but it's I think it's the, the acceleration which I'm looking forward to, and I think it's the ongoing emphasis on quality engagement, quality engagement with iwi and hapu, so that that code kopapa Māori co-design is always um, the approach to shaping our world. Kua mutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching, and nā mihi kia koutou i Thanks for your feedback. Hey tērā wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.